Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Mav Sports Take Episode 6. Thanking everybody for listening to Mav Sports Take this week and our first few episodes. If you missed last week's in particular, we had former Appalachian State quarterback Armani Edwards on. It was the anniversary of the team's 34 32 upset victory over the University of Michigan in the big house. One of my fondest memories 13 years ago. Uh, a moment that made me feel very old, to say the least. We previewed some NFL action. Obviously, we just passed the first week, week number one of the NFL season. It was far too long, it seemed. Today, we're going to do an overview of, of the sports world in general. We're going to talk a little NBA, MLB, NHL, of course, some college football, NFL, hitting a mailbag as well. We are also live right now on Twitter, on my Twitter, at Rise and Draft. Taking live questions as always. We appreciate everybody who is tuned in right now listening to us. It is 8.30 Eastern time, 8.34 to be exact. Tuesday night, release date for this is 3 o'clock Eastern time tomorrow, Wednesday, every single week. Thanking everybody again for taking some time to us. At the end, we're also going to hit our mailbag section. Every single week, we ask for questions. We got another batch of awesome ones tonight. Ryan Roberts here, Director of Scouting at NFL Draft Bible, NFL Draft Writer out for the Fantasy Draft Room, host of Baldi's Breakdowns, which is this week, Wednesday, if you're listening to this, uh, or I guess it would be today if you're listening to this at the release date, uh, 9 o'clock Eastern Time as well, Baldi's Scouting Seminar. Please sign up now at NFLDraftBible.com. Also, co-host for Friday Night Scout School every Friday 9 Eastern time with my partner in crime, David Turner, here with me at Mav underscore sports. I'm going to do his intro. You guys know how it goes every week. This might take a minute, and then I'm going to shut up and let him introduce himself. David Turner, former professional scout for 18 years, Miami Dolphins, Oakland Raiders, Carolina Panthers, New York Giants, San Francisco 49ers, also had a three straight Arena League titles with the Arizona Rattlers, a little dynasty over there in Arizona as the director of player personnel and assistant general manager. Brief stop with the Edmonton Eskimos as well, so he touched base not only in the arena and at National Football League, but also in the CFL. Director of pro personnel over there with the Edmonton Eskimo, now owner-president of Maverick Sports Consulting, as well as director of player personnel with the ANC Combines and my partner in crime tonight, obviously, for Mavs Sports Stake, but also for the Friday Night Scout School that I mentioned that is again coming this Friday, 9 Eastern time. David, those intros, take it out of me, man, but I am energized. I got my coffee ready to go. How are we doing, my friend? Dude, I'm pumped tonight. Like, honestly, it's a it's a night where we get to get into week one of the NFL. We get to talk about NBA playoffs, a little NHL, a little MLB action, some history and stuff going on there. 
So it's going to be a great night just to talk overall sports, uh, college football and everything. You know, obviously our strength for you and I is football, but we're going to touch base on everything tonight and really get into it and give uh, all the sports a do because, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, it came up on uh, in my talks the other day on September 10th this year. It was the first time that all six major sports played on the same night between college football NFL, MLB, NBA, WNBA, hockey, and a soccer game all played. So it was just amazing to have that kind of history in September. I don't know if we'll ever see it again. So tonight we're going to make a tribute and talk as much sports as we can about a much different, any, all the sports we can think about and, uh, put them, put them forward for our, our audience to hear us speak and get, uh, you know, un, unmuzzled about them. And I'm kind of hoping that it never does happen again, Dave, because if it is, that means some, some national pandemic uh, probably hit us again. So uh, pretty crazy. I didn't even think about that. WNBA as well. I did not paste that picture together. All the major sports one night. We are obviously in the midst of an NBA playoffs at the moment. Touched on basketball briefly before. David, I know obviously you're the West Coast guy, so I know you wanted to talk a little bit of the Western Conference playoff section that's happening right now. Uh, what has kind of been capturing your attention in regards to the NBA right now? Well, with the NBA, you know, I'm waiting to see if we if the Clippers can pull it off tonight in the Game 7 and we can get a battle for L.A. I think that would be a really fun matchup to see the Lakers and Clippers go at it and see if the Clippers can finally get the, the stranglehold off the – LA market that the, you know, Lakers have had for generations. You know, it was, it's really hard for me. I mean, Doc Rivers is one of my favorite coaches in NBA history. I really enjoy him. I really enjoy how he's been through this whole movement and everything coming, you know, as with the social uh, injustice and all that stuff. He's been very outspoken and, you know, he's a man that really has seen all aspects of it and lived it. So, you know, for me as a man, I'm rooting for him and I'm rooting for him to, you know, kind of, take that seat at the table, come in and hopefully unseed the uh, the Lakers. But tonight's game seven. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this when we release it, you're already going to know the, the result. But as we sit here right now, I mean, the Clippers blew a 19-point lead the other night in game six against the Nuggets. You know, their strength in the regular season was a depth off their bench. And right now, it's not really working for them. You know, see how he grips that to, to succeed tonight in game seven. Um, you know, or if the Nuggets can steal – steal the seat and, you know, ride the wave in the battle of the Lakers. It's going to be really interesting out here out West tonight and over the coming week. David, quick curveball here. I feel like it's something that's talked about so much. LA market. You just mentioned, obviously the Lakers, Mr. LeBron James. I know you're a little old fashioned with some of your beliefs. There's always that conversation of LeBron James versus Michael Jordan. Let me hear your side of the argument because I've not talked basketball that deeply with you. Not even close. I mean, it's not even close. I'm sorry for you, LeBron lovers, but it's not even close. I watched MJ. I was fortunate one time to go to a Warriors game versus Bulls and saw him live. And the way he moved so effortlessly through people, around people, rebounding, defense. I mean, the man had jump shots, dunks. I mean, he took pride in his defense, his rebounds. I mean, it was amazing to watch him play. I mean, guys like him. Allen Iverson, Colby Bryant, to me, are just on a whole different level. LeBron, yeah, he's got his skills. I'm not saying he's not up in the conversation or shouldn't be, but to me, LeBron's more in the conversation of uh, Dominique Wilkins and 
you know, mailman and that kind of thing. MJ and Colby and Iverson to me were just elite, elite rare athletes that were playing the game on a whole different level. That's fair enough. I am a LeBron truther, so we'll have to debate this, I think, sometime in the near future. Wanted to, because, so for everyone that doesn't know, I am a Philadelphia supporter outside of the football spectrum. So Sixers, Phillies for baseball, Flyers. I am a you know Philly guy right outside of Philly. I live over here over the bridge in New Jersey. So I must say that the Eastern Conference series that is happening right now, I have some very negative feelings towards right now as a Sixers fan. Because I look at the Celtics, right? Like we start with the Celtics. Going back to the old days of Dr. J, Julius Irving, and all those guys down there when they were really good. The Boston Strangler, Andrew Toney. The Celtics-Sixers um, rivalry has been a very heated one for a long time. Nobody in Philadelphia likes any team in Boston. I will tell you that. Going to the Bruins, the Patriots even, even though that's not really a rivalry. We do not like Boston for whatever reason. Well, I, I actually, well, for, for good reason. They've, they've been a rival for a long time. But So now I'm watching the Celtics, who have Mr. Jason Tatum, who the Sixers decided to draft Markel Fultz a few years over Mr. Jason Tatum, uh, which turned out to be one of the worst picks I can remember in recent memory because now Jason Tatum has become one of the best players in the NBA, 23 points a game, great small forward, uh, and he can shoot, which if you've ever watched the Sixers game in recent memory, uh, we could use some shooters. We do not have them. And on the other side, the Heat, which is a great story, absolutely. But if you were a Sixers fan last year, the Sixers made a trade to bring in Jimmy Butler, who is an excellent basketball player. And there was some talk about them bringing him back this year. And let's just say they decided over bringing back Brett Brown, the head coach, and Tobias Harris, who is the most overpaid max contract in the NBA currently, Mr. Tobias Harris. They chose... Those two individuals over Jimmy Butler, who is a killer on the court. That guy, like you talk about alpha mentality, right? Like when you talked about Kobe Bryant. Now, obviously, Jimmy Butler is not nearly in that stratosphere as far as talent-wise, but that dude wants the ball down the stretch. He is a killer on the basketball court. So this matchup is like I don't get any, any satisfaction out of who wins this. I'm just like waiting. And I'm just hoping the Western Conference can somehow win whoever makes it to the finals. Because, like, I don't want to see Jimmy Butler hold up a, a trophy as a salty Sixers fan. I definitely don't want to see Jason Tatum in the Boston Celtics. So I'm painting to a corner here where I'm just like, dude, whoever wins, whether it's Clippers uh, or the Nuggets, like, one of those teams, please win it. Please win it. So uh, basketball is, is a little bit of a rough patch for me right now, David, to say the least. Well, it's funny because being on the West Coast, growing on the West Coast, my my cousin was a huge Lakers fan. And back in those days, um, you know, ah, the Celtics and Lakers were a big matchup. So I always chose the Celtics to go against him because he was a huge James Worthy, Magic Johnson fan. So I was like, Bird, McHale, baby, and the Chief, let's go. And so we would fight. So I've always watched the Celtics. I've enjoyed the Celtics for years. Um, again, I, I, I love rich sports history teams. And to me, the Celtics are one of those rich sports history teams. So, you know, I, I'm kind of in my, in my world right now. I am definitely rooting for, you know, a Clippers Celtics final. 
and and see where we go from there. That's what I would like to see. Well, I, I do. I mean, I agree 100 percent. Right. Like when big market teams are better, it's better for the sport in general. So obviously that is a good point there. Uh, NHL, again, as a, as a uh, Flyers fan, as a Philadelphia fan, not good for me either right now. <laughs> I mean, the Flyers had a nice season. Looked like they were going to make noise going into the second round. And then, you know, their series got cut very short. Um, it was in pretty decisive fashion, especially the last, the last game of the series where the Flyers were eliminated. So now we are stuck in the Eastern Conference to root, to decide who to root for. I I'm, I'm, would like to see the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think that they have to be the favorite here. They won 62 games last year. Obviously, they had that historic collapse. down. Uh, they were up 3-0 Columbus Blue Jackets four straight to knock them out of the playoffs, which was insane, right? Like that team was loaded. We talk about Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov. Uh, John Cooper has done a great job as their co- uh, head coach over there for the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I guess if there's somebody that I'm hoping to root for, just because I think the, the Lightning are so dominant, uh, it'd be nice to see. You know, Steven Stamkos has been a great player for a long time, really good goal scorer. Nikita's kind of taken over that realm as probably the best player on the team. So I guess Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, Western Conference, David, is there a team? I think there's an L.A. team left, right, if I'm looking at this correct? No, 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 no. It's uh, the Golden Knights uh, got beat last night in in overtime. Vegas Knights got beat in overtime, and they broke my heart. They were up 2-0 going into the third, and then all of a sudden they let the Dallas Stars come back in and score two goals to take it to overtime, and then with like – Three minutes and 30 seconds in overtime left. Dennis Garotnovo, who, you know, I just messed that last name up. So, Dennis, if you want a t-shirt, call me because I owe you one for screwing up your name. But uh, he scored a goal and, you know, he he wound up winning the game for him. And now they're going to the Stanley Cup Finals. It's the first time for that franchise since 2000. You know, and, and I, I know I'm, I'm always happy to see teams like that that have had a long drought you know, work their way back in and, and earn, earn it back and go, go, uh, go achieve their goals and their team goals. But I was really rooting for the Knights. I don't know what it is about the Vegas Knights. It's just some about them that's electric out here out West. You know, I mean, I know in Arizona, we have our, our coyotes and everybody likes them, but I don't know out here. There's a lot of night fans, uh, already in Arizona and throughout the Southwest. So I was rooting for them. And when they were up 2-0 and when I was getting my notes ready for the tonight's, tonight's, you know, show, I was like, here we go. I'm going to be able to talk about the nights and, and, and talk about how great they are and da da da. No, they blew it. They choked. So do you guys even have ice out West? <laughs> yeah. It costs a lot to have it, but yes, oh, yes, sure it's it out here. Yeah, I'm but sure no, it, it costs does. a lot to have it. Oh man, that's that's funny. Um, <laughs> I mean, NHL is such a weird one for me because I'll be very honest; like they are probably my least watched sport of the four major sports by like a pretty large margin. I just it, it's I've had trouble getting into it over the years, you know, because like my dad again, like you know, me and David talked about this a little off air. My dad grew up with like the Broad Street Bullies and those great teams with Bobby Clark and Bill Barber and. Bernie Piranha, goalie, like great teams. When I was growing up, it was like Keith Primo. We got Jeremy Roenick on the back end of his career. You know, it just nothing great. I, the goalie situation, I remember Roman Czechmonic. Like it just hasn't been great for the Flyers. Obviously now the Flyers have 
pretty solid team. Carter Hart in goal is a good is obviously a really good young goalie. Um, they still have Claude Giroux and and um, a couple other guys that are nice players. Feel like they're a goal scorer away from being a serious contender, but it's just been kind of absent, uh, missing from me. And uh, David, I, I don't know if it's kind of sitting with you the same way because I, I just feel like hockey has been like detached from my heart over recent years. Well, for me, I've not again growing up in the Bay Area. You know, it was football, baseball, basketball. I didn't watch a lot of hockey when the Sharks came around. They were fun. They, you know, I, and my my uncle and my uh, his son started playing hockey and stuff. So I watched a little bit with them because they really got into it hardcore. Um, for me, I just enjoy great sporting events. When when I used to work for the Miami Dolphins it, as an intern, once in a while you'd get tickets to go over there and see the Panthers play because the owner uh, Wayne Huizinga owned both teams at the time, and he owned and and then we get Marlin tickets too because he had seats of the Marlins. So you know it was an intern night out where you'd get a, a six pack of tickets and the interns would go enjoy watching the hockey games, you know, basically for free and. It was great, you know. Um, so I love watching live ho- hockey. I find it hard to watch on TV, but again, I'm just not a diehard. It's not bread. My brother-in-law is from Minnesota, and he loves it. He comes over to the house. He turns it on. I'll watch it with him and drink some beers. But, you know, when he t- starts talking like you guys do with, like, intimate knowledge and historical references to players, I just get lost because I just don't have that reference in my in my brain. You know, it's just not there. It wasn't built into me. Well, I'm sure they had a lot of uh, a lot of tickets to give away for Miami Marlins fans. I feel like every time I watch one of their games, there's nobody in the stands ever for a Marlins game. Miami is a hard sell, man. When 2002, we had Ricky Williams. We had beat the Raiders in the last game in November. We were going into December needing to win one game and maybe two to win the the whole division. And it was a hard ticket to sell. I mean, there's just so much to do in Miami other than football and sports in general. It's a hard sell to get the fans in. So, you know, I, I applaud owners to have teams in those markets because it's, it's, they have to do extra work to get butts and seats. Yeah. We, that's really funny because me and um, a couple of friends were actually talking about that yesterday or Sunday night. Um, I had a couple guys over to watch the, the, the Rams Cowboys game and we were talking a little bit about that. And I kind of thought like maybe, and you can correct me if I'm completely wrong, because obviously you live there for a little bit and um, being a part of the Dolphins organization, but it seems like Miami also is kind of like a college town. I feel like most people down there are like hurricane supporters, kind of more than professional football. Is that far off? Well, no, I mean, the hurricanes down there are a huge draw for, for span for, for sports fans. But again, it, the younger crowd gravitates to them, but then the NFL ticket is more expensive, right? So when you get a more expensive product, you got to start bringing in corporations and you got to start bringing in, um, you know, sponsors and sponsor dollars. And in Miami, there's so much to do. And when people come visit Miami, most people want to go to the beach. They want to hang out. They want to go out on the water. They want to go fishing. They want to do other stuff besides come to a football game. So, you know, that's one thing that, also, when you know the Raiders went to Vegas, I I was a little concerned with that market just because, you know, if the casinos don't buy in and buy suites and tickets, is it going to sell out? Because there's so much to do in Vegas, and it's a Sunday afternoon. When let's be honest, most people are hungover from the Friday Saturday, and they're flying out on Sundays. So will they be packed? I mean, 
that's just the market, and we'll see um, how sales go. I mean, we saw the Chargers last year struggle in the LA market selling tickets when the Rams were doing okay. So it's all you know. Again, we're going to talk business of football here. What's the market going to support? And in Miami, even when you have a good winning team, a strong winning team, it's just hard to get the butts in the seats because there's so much else to do. Here, here's a trivia question for maybe a future Friday night scout school. Ryan Roberts' first NFL game was a Chicago Bear Miami Dolphin game in like 1999. That was probably my first NFL game. You know my first my favorite my first college football game, David. You ready for this one? Uh, Virginia Tech at Temple at the at the um, at Veterans Stadium. Ooh, the vet. Okay. The vet. Michael Vick was the quarterback for Virginia Tech. That was my first college football game. They were actually – it was a close game at halftime, and then I think Virginia Tech ended up winning 60-6 to or something like that. There was just a little random tidbit of trivia for you. It was insane to say the least. Last sport we want to get to before we get heavy into the football. And we were talking about hockey, and somehow we tied it into football. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> Our roads always lead back to football. It really does. It really does. I don't even know how we got there. I'm trying to like format it in my head exactly the uh, the, the um, script there of how we got there. But we wanted to touch on baseball real quick. A take for each. I'll start it off here. So the Twitterverse is a wonderful place. But once in a while, there is some ignorant statements that happen in the Twitterverse. So I'll start it off by saying this, right? So a Jersey guy, Mike Trout for the Angels. It's is the best player in baseball. It's pretty convincing, I think, at this point, right? Like he is a dynamite, dynamic baseball player who is going to be a Hall of Famer one day without a shadow of a doubt. So there was like this trending topic one day on Twitter, probably like two weeks ago, where someone, see, it seemed half jokingly, was like, yeah, well, Mike Trout's better than Ken Griffey Jr. And then I retweeted and I'm like, is this, is this really a take? And I cannot explain to you how many people came into defense that Mike Trout is a better baseball player than Ken Griffey Jr. I could not believe it. And let me tell you, you know how I am, right? Like, we had those conversations. I just took LeBron over Michael Jordan. Like, I am not like a, you know, oh, set in the old ways type of person. Like, you know, older is better type of thing. But when we're looking no, that's at that. usually my argument. <laughs> right, right. That's just right. So I'm just saying, like we're we're usually a little adverse in that you know in that situation a little bit. I will say that that for me is the most ludicrous statement I've ever heard. Maybe it might just be me a bias to somewhat of a degree because Ken Griffey Jr. was, by all accounts, my favorite baseball player growing up when he was on the Seattle Mariners and when he went to Cincinnati Reds afterwards. He was incredible. First game that I became obsessed with on Nintendo 64 was actually Major League Baseball featuring Ken Griffey Jr. The greatest game of all time. I don't care how old you are. The absolute best video game of all time. And I have to tell you, man, when when I was growing up, Ken Griffey Jr. playing center field was one of the most magnificent things of all time. Defensively, like you, he could have just been a defensive player and he would have been a great baseball player. Won like 10 gold gloves. He was exceptional. That guy... If he didn't start stringing along all these injuries, he's the home run leader of all time. I think it's pretty convincing that he's the home run leader of all time with 10 gold gloves. I think he might be in the conversation of best baseball player ever if his durability was a little better. Mike Trout is a good baseball, a really good baseball player. I said he's probably going to be a Hall of Famer one day. 
He's not the, the hitter, the raw power. Contact-wise, pretty similar. He might have a slight edge over Ken Griffey. But then when you take the defense into account, I don't even think it's close. I really don't. Like, defensively, Ken Griffey Jr., I mean, that dude played the wall better than I've ever seen anybody. How many, how many home runs did he rob putting his arm over that center field wall? It was absolutely insane. Range for days. The dude, one of the best athletes of all time, in my opinion. Like, and usually it's interesting too, because usually, you know, you have, you have a father that played, right? And then the son is usually good, but not quite as good. You know, I'm thinking like Torrey Hunter, Torrey Hunter Jr., like that type of thing. Um, Tom Gordon's son, the, the really good closer, D. Gordon's like a pretty solid baseball player, but Tom Gordon was one of the best closers, you know, of his time. So like usually the... Usually the son's good, but not quite as good. For Ken Griffey Jr., like Ken Griffey Sr. was a good baseball player, but Ken Griffey Jr. is one of the best players of all time. So, like, I just think that that – and I don't know if you have any two cents to put into this one, but, like, that conversation of Mike Trout over Ken Griffey Jr., I think is so ridiculous. Like, like I think it's such recency bias in that type of conversation. I was going to say, it's a, gener- it's a, gener- it's a generous uh, – generation bias so while they most of whoever was making that statement hadn't seen ken griffey in his prime play a game so they can't reference it to really understand how good ken was i mean his his ability to like you said cover ground go over the wall i mean and power and contact and he came in the league i believe he was like 18 years old or 19 years old and he he played 22 years or something. I think he played till he was 40 or 41 or something like that. And again, yeah, his body broke down and wear, wear down, but his contact, his ability to place the ball, like he knew the situations at the plate. He knew if he just need a single or try for a double, like he knew that, Hey, I can swing away at this one. He was, he was very surreal in his approach to the game on top of being such a great athlete and having that athletic ability and those natural tools, it just made him a complete baseball player all the way through the diamond from the plate to the field to whatever he was asked to do. And if, when my son or daughter is old enough to play baseball or softball, whatever it is, right. If they want to play, not going to force them to, if I'm showing them the perfect swing, Ken Griffey Jr. Like no best swing of all time. Let's be honest. His, when he when he when he contacted one and the way he would just walk away, I mean, oh. it was just it was just beautiful. It was a thing of beauty. It was like every every swing was like a walk off home run. Like every time he made contact, he just had a little shoulder a little shoulder sway right, and he was just out of the box. Like it was just oh man, I I could talk about Ken Griffey Jr. all day, man. That was like one of if there was honestly, and this is no BS at all, like baseball idol. It's Ken Griffey Jr. for me by a landslide, not a Philadelphia Philly. Like if it was a Philadelphia Philly, I guess maybe it'd be like Jimmy Rollins or Chase Utley, like very good baseball players. But if you ask me a baseball guy that was my guy growing up, it's Ken Griffey Jr. by a landslide. Major League Baseball featuring Ken Griffey Jr. again. Greatest video game of all time. We appreciate you tuning in tonight to Mav Sports Take. If you like what you hear please consider signing up for our Friday Night Scout School season pass. David and I teach a weekly class on how to view view football through a scouting lens. This coming week is special teams week. We will be covering every role from punting, kicking, returners, snappers, and gunners. Friday Night Scout School is your pathway to understand football at a higher level. 
Make sure to tune into that at NFLDraftBible.com to sign up for that today. Again, Friday night, Scout School, 9 Eastern time, every Friday night. Moving into some football. We know that I am an NCAA college football guy over NFL. So we've had college football for the last couple weeks. We want to kind of just hit on some topics here, but also pick some games and talk about uh, the highlights of each game. Uh, David, I know that there's a takeaway that you kind of wanted to present to the listeners tonight. What did you have for them? Well, my biggest takeaway from college football this weekend is where's the mask? Where are the face covers? I watch a bunch of college coaches walk around the the sidelines barking at their kids with no face masks, no coverings on. Um, today, uh, USC players release a, an, um, a, I guess, uh, some kind of note, whatever you want to call it, a statement that they feel that they should be able to be playing football. Well, it's interesting because that comes on the same day that Ed Orgeron went out and said that most of his team, and understand most of your team means a hundred people. A hundred right. people are on his roster. scholarship plus the rest on the roster. Like a crazy amount of people. <laughs> and he wants to call most of his team have had has contracted COVID. And then Texas Tech has put out the numbers that 75 of their members of their players since they've opened up for football has contracted COVID. Now, again, are they living? Yeah. Are there major issues? Are they surviving it? Yeah, they're surviving it, but they've contracted COVID in a sports environment that's being supposedly traced and tracked. And all these places are supposedly going through all these protocols and still at LSU, he said most of his players have had it. And he says, I hope that you know they don't re-get it. And SEC rules and protocols are saying that they don't have to be retested for 90 days after they've been tested positive for COVID. That's crazy. Right. So you got it's not that it's safe to play, people. We're showing you they're surviving. These kids are contracting the disease and surviving, but they are not safe. Okay, it's not a safe environment. Troy Vincent, after uh, Sunday's games in the NFL, sent out an email that you can go on Twitter and find if you like. Um, And the email says, great job, coaches, but we have to stay in compliance on our sideline policies with our face coverings that is in compliance to the league and in a uh, union's uh, agreement as well as local officials laws. Now, again, I know a lot of people in the South are going to listen to this podcast and say, there ain't no way they're going to shut down football down here. Guess what? The local officials can shut down football. If you're not being in compliance with the local laws on face coverings. And what I saw on college football this weekend, when I watched it, I couldn't believe the lack of, responsibility these coaches showed for having face coverings on and then hearing the numbers today from Ed Orgeron and Texas Tech having so many of their kids testing positive for COVID if the coaches don't take it serious attitude's going to reflect leadership and then you're going to see these kids go to the parties do everything else spread the disease and what's it going to take we already saw a 20 year old defensive tackle from California PA loses life to COVID. Are we need, do we need to see more for people to take it serious? Just wear the face coverings. Now I know people are like, Hey, this is a sports show. I want to hear about the good stuff. We'll get there. But this was my major takeaway from the weekend 
uh, because we are in the middle of a pandemic and we all, we need to take it serious. And people have to understand that local officials can shut games down if they're not in compliance with the face covering. So I'd hope the local, the coaches in week two here coming up really show a better, set a better example for these young men and, and use the face coverings, the face shields in the way they're meant to be to help protect everybody. Absolutely. And, you know, we have we have a little group chat, right, where I got we got the text from David while this was happening. Where are these guys masks? And it's so true because and David, you know, this being around so many coaches right in your career that like if they're not doing something, why is a player going to do it? You know, it's the ultimate example. Like, why am I listening to you? You're preaching to me like wear your face mask, right? Like we want football this year. And then we see you on the sideline not wearing your mask properly or not wearing it at all. Why am I listening to a coach in that situation? It's, it's just absolutely crazy to expect a player to, to listen to these parameters, listen to these rules, to make sure there's college football, and you see the coach not abiding by those rules, you know? Well, again, if you watch, go replay the Florida State game. Every coach was wearing their face covering like it was a bandana around their neck. you know. And plus, those kind of face coverings aren't even that – they're not that good. Let's be frank. They've, they've come out and said these kind of uh, scarf-like ski mask things aren't that good. you got to have a regular face mask. You see, like, Joe Judge last night had his face mask on the entire game, most of the Giants and, um, you know, all the sidelines last night I thought did a better job than even Sunday. But the NFL did a much better job across the board, and that's why they might have an ability to finish a season – because they're not inviting issues into their their building. They know the local laws. They know the local rules. They're trying to do better. Leadership at the top said, hey, we got to do better. Troy Vincent sent his email. But in NC2A, again, because there's no leadership, there's nobody really governing these guys. They're out there, Wild West, and they own their own programs, and they do what they want on campus. No one checks them or holds them accountable. You got these guys running around with no face masks, no coverings. And, again, a local official can't shut college football down. And they won't be able to say anything about it because they're not in compliance with what is a local ordinance and law. And I'd hate to see college football go away for arrogance and ego. And it's just it's just crazy to me also that like everybody is so nonchalant with it. Like, yeah, we you know, we had a bunch of players that had it and stuff. We don't have data on this this virus to the point where we can say, like, one, we don't understand the complete long term. Um, effects of this virus and also like people act like this is like the chicken pox right like you have it once you're good to go like how how many times can we contract this virus like well there's confirmed there's confirmed cases now that people are getting it a second time because of it's it's turning over and it's 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 mutating and so people are catching it a second time the president of brazil who was like our president who was like not wearing a mask then caught it and then he caught it again after he was fine. And again, we're seeing a second wave because of the mutations. And we don't know what, like you said, it's so early. It's such a juvenile stage for a uh, a virus. We don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. We hear about scarring of lungs. We hear about heart um, issues developing. We don't know. And now we have 75 young men confirmed getting COVID since Texas Tech's opened up and 
Ed Ordron saying the vast majority, or I'm sorry, the majority of his players have had it. And, and now they don't have to be tested again for 90 days. So you're telling me these guys who have it recover from it. And the SEC is not going to ask them to be checked for another 90 days. So therefore they don't have to pay for those testing. What if another, what if someone gets it inside those 90 days and passes away from it? It's a second contraction. They got it and they passed away and they didn't even know they had it because they were playing with it and they had no idea. But because of SEC rules, they don't need to get tested again. So therefore we're not going to test to know. It's re, it's, it's just so ludicrous to me. Uh, like, you know, if you're not going to test once a week, you got to be at least testing once every 10 days. These guys, you know, you're asking them to come on campus and you know, these numbers are so high and you see the testing in your program so high. How do you not test them once every 10 days? Like everybody. I mean, you got to I mean, it's LSU. You can afford that. Absolutely. And it's, it's just like one of those things where everything is such the the shorthand consequence of everything that you're making decisions on things that you don't have data on. Like you can't make a proper decision right now because you don't understand it. You're trying to make the quick fix instead of having the long-term circumstances, the long-term effect be the, the key cog to doing what you're doing. I want to get in though, David, because we could talk about this all night and it's a little, I don't call it negative. It's the real world. It's unmuzzled. It's what we're here to talk about. But I do want to get into some college football games this week that we were a little bit excited about. I just saw Duke very firsthand against Notre Dame this this past week. Saw that the entire game. Uh, Duke looked better than I anticipated them looking uh, uh, with Coach, um, oh God, what's his name? Peyton Manning's offensive coordinator uh, at Tennessee. And uh, David Cutcliffe, there it is. Came to it. There, it is. Co- Coach Cutcliffe um, had his – Transfer quarterback from Clemson looking pretty good. Chase Bryce, he's got some dudes on that defense. A couple defensive ends that are very good. Chris Rumpf, uh, Victor Dijamuk, and he's got Marquise Waters at safety. A pretty talented Duke team taking on Boston College in Boston College's first game of the season. Duke is favored by six points. The over-under for the game is 52 points. Uh, David, when you look at that line and just how the – how Vegas is kind of looking at this game right now. What's your initial thoughts on this game? And it may be even a pick if you have one. You know, I thought Duke played really well last week against Notre Dame. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a fluke. I really think they're a well-disciplined offense and defense. I think it was a get their feet wet against a bigger competition. But settling in and playing, I think Duke's going to end up with a very positive season under this head coach. And I think, you know, Boston College to me, again, it's their first – First game, we don't know what we're getting out of them. But when I look at the lineups and the rosters, I really like what Duke brings to the table. I think Vegas does too, obviously. That's why they got Duke up by six. And, you know, the over-under set at 52. So I don't know if Vegas is really expecting much out of Boston College because, you know, the 52 is kind of a low over-under line. So, you know, for me, I'm thinking Duke, and I would probably take the points and and uh, think they're going to hit that 52. You know what? I I would actually go a little different on this one. I think it's under because I think that Duke, again, has a nice defense. Boston College defense is not quite as good, but they're more of a ground and pound type of offensive system. I feel like it's going to be a little bit of a slower pace type of game. 
I would probably take Boston College to cover, not necessarily win. I think it's going to be a competitive football game because I'll tell you what, Boston College has some dudes on their offensive line. They have a tight end named Hunter Long, who's an NFL guy, and they have a transfer quarterback from Notre Dame, Phil Jerkovic, who is a very talented quarterback. He will be the most talented quarterback at Boston College, probably since Matt Ryan, at the very least. He is a very talented quarterback, six, four and a half, four, six, four, seven kid in the 40 yard dash, has a very strong arm. I'm taking Phil Jerkovic and Boston College to cover, not necessarily win. Uh, next game that we want to talk about. Houston is taking on the Baylor Bears. Baylor favored by four and a half. It seems a little low to me with an over under of 63 points. Let you start. I let you start on the last one, David. I, my initial thoughts is I think that that four and a half is a little low. I would take Baylor in this game. I think Baylor's a pretty decent little football team. I don't know if Houston is. Um, I would take Baylor in those points. Over under 63, that's the tough one for me. I don't know how much – Houston is traditionally a good offensive team, but they have um, some uncertainty at quarterback. Uh, Toon is their quarterback after De'Ara King transferred, after he got hurt this past season. Oh, man, that over under is messing me up a little bit. I would definitely take Baylor to win. I would probably go under if I was forced to on that one. See, I think this is going to be a wide-open game. I don't see much defense on either side of the football here. When I look at the two rosters and I, I try to you know, go into them a little bit, I didn't see any names that really popped out as like defensive wowers on either side. So I think this is going to be a track meet. I think it's going to go up and down the field. I think Baylor wins. I do think it's a over, and I think that it's going to be one of those you know, basketball-type scores when at the end of it, it might it might wind up being 37-43 or uh, something like that. But I think Baylor ultimately pulls this one out. It's a pretty good team that that coach uh, left behind for for them. So I think there's they're, they got some pretty good offensive talent. And uh, again, I think I, again I, I don't really see a lot of defensive stops coming in this game. I, I don't either. I'm just I'm I just not sure how good Houston is. I get and I guess. Now that you were kind of talking about it a little bit, I guess the four and a half might be set a little low because you do have a new coach with Matt Rule taking over the Carolina Panthers. So I guess there's that effect. Makes sense. Last game we wanted to touch on college football-wise, Miami, the U. I keep hearing the U's back. Taking on Louisville. Louisville favored in this game. Two and a half. Over under. 64 and a half. The highest over under we talked about tonight. David, initial thoughts on this game. Is Miami back under Coach Diaz? I don't know if they're back. I think they're strong. I think they have some strong defensive leaders. I love their quarterback right now. I think they got some some talent around him. I you know, I really think that here in Miami, you 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 got a strong I think it's in Louisville though, right? They're traveling to Louisville for this game, if I remember. Yes. So you know, for me, Louisville had a really strong game last week. This is going to be the game that I tune into, pop some popcorn, sit down with a hot dog, and and watch this one. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be a track meet. I think there's going to be some more defensive stops in here than people give it credit. That 64.5 is a huge line. I think, you know, for me, I'm going to go with Miami winning and being on the underside. They'll slow it down a little bit. They'll control it. A couple defensive stops. And we don't reach 64 and a half. So 
this is going to get me in trouble because I actually have a lot of Hurricane followers on Twitter. I will say, I think Louisville runs away with this one a little bit. I'm not going to say it's blowout faction, but I can I can buy Louisville by 10 in this game. I think like a 35, 25, 25 is a weird number. Maybe we'll go 35, 24 instead. Maybe we'll go 11 points instead. It, it's a fun game if you just want to see very athletic quarterbacks that can do some stuff on the ground and in the air. We got De'Ara King for Miami. Louisville's got Mikhail Cunningham, who's a really interesting player. Uh, they have a dynamic wide receiver, good running back with, in uh, Javier Hawken, Hawkins. There we go. Uh, really fun team. They have a lot of speed. At the end of the day, even though this is going to sound weird, I think Louisville has more team speed than Miami does. I think that's going to be a little bit of the difference. Miami this, does have a couple. This isn't of nice, the derby. This isn't the derby, bro. This is a football game. Oh man, college football. And you're talking about the U. The U's open. got speed, baby. Uh, this isn't this isn't your daddy's U. So <laughs> <laughs> this is this is 2020, man. This is in 2002 or whatever that year was where their team was stupid loaded. We need to do a whole podcast just looking at like that that roster where, right where they had like Ed Reed, Sean Taylor, Vince Wilfork, DJ Williams, John Beeson, like all those dudes. That would be a fun um that'd be a fun podcast to say the least. Oh yeah, that was a beast team right there. You're talking about all nearly first round draft choices right there. And it was crazy. I, I think the tight ends group too was Shockey, Winslow Jr. Clinton Portis, Willis McGahee, Frank Gore might have been on that team. Frank Jared Gore was on that team, yep. Like, stupid. It was Andre Johnson. Like, that team was ridiculous. Bryant McKinney at left tackle. Like, oh, man. That was a scary team. <laughs> I really was. Uh, yeah, so that was the college football games we wanted to take a look at. Moving into the NFL. David, just quick reaction this past week. I know when we talked last week, you thought there was going to be a lot of low-scoring games. Seems like that might have been a little bit different than what you might have predicted for us. I'm telling you, I'm shocked. My biggest takeaway is I couldn't believe the outpour that these offenses had. I mean, they went to town. The average winning score on offense was uh, uh, together was 30 points. You know, the Rams are not. Uh, was it the Chargers and? Uh, Titans kind of weighed us down at 16 or it would have been even higher. I mean, you think about that. Green Bay won at 43 points scored. There was a few uh, 34s and 37s. So, you know, it was a situation where the offenses opened it up and they went to town. I was really shocked. I thought with no preseason games, the offensive lines were going to struggle and the defense was going to, you know, kind of keep scoring down. It opened up, baby. There were some a lot of offensive production this week. And that was the biggest surprise for me coming up, coming up uh, for air after this weekend's games was, wow, look at all the points scored. I feel like when people talk about the Seattle Seahawks too, like specifically over the years, right? Like you, you always think back to the not giving Marshawn Lynch the ball in the Super Bowl, right? Down near the goal line. They're always like that, that team that is like near the top in rushing numbers. They let Russ... I, I saw it all over Twitter. They let Russ cook. They took him off the leash a little bit, right? Like they just let Russell Wilson kill it. A little bit surprising. The I, I wasn't quite as high on Seattle specifically going into the year. Like I thought they were going to be a 10-win team. They looked good. I'll give Jamal Adams some credit, man. He looked good. Russell Wilson was like 31 out of 35. Like just to your point, right? Like we saw a lot of points. First game we want to talk about. New, new look. New England Patriots with Cam Newton at quarterback, a lot of design quarterback runs, 
some single wing, it looked like. I, I felt like I was co- uh, watching high school ball a little bit there. Seattle Seahawks, Sunday night game. Seattle is favored by four points. The over-under is 45. Low under, over-under there. Four-point favorite for Seattle. Uh, you buying it, David. Is is this the end for New England Patriots? Because obviously they beat, a, they beat a, you know, rebuilding Miami Dolphins team. So they're playing one of the better teams now in the NFL. Is New England just this average team, or do you think that this is a good matchup overall? No, I don't want to call them an average team. I think they're an interesting team. And when I watched that offense play, it kind of reminded me what Josh McDaniels loved so much about Tebow. But now he's got like a Tebow on steroids with Cam Newton because, you know, Cam can really throw it and um, Cam can run it and Cam's bigger and, and, and because he's just a gifted athlete. Right. But that's what he loved to run with Tebow over in in Denver is all this, you know, quarterback run stuff and things and and work off that package. And then I saw, you know, spring its head here with Cam and I was like, okay, this makes sense. That's why Josh and him were having so much fun. I do feel that Seattle is a defense that's going to be able to handle them. I think it's a defense that's going to cause them a little problems because they can cover. I think they got some good man coverage scheme um, mixed in with their zone stuff. And I think that's going to ultimately cause New England a little, a little fit. And I think it's just a hiccup for New England this week. I don't think it's a long season. Oh my God, let's, you know, crash after this week. I think that going to Seattle, playing in Seattle, um, right now, and uh, they they could meet a juggernaut because you know you know Seattle's my pick to go to the Super Bowl for for the NFC. I really like them. I like how they built that team this year. I think they got some depth. They got some roster stuff that is going to work in their favor. And and I think Russell Wilson is the league MVP this year at the end of the season. So. You know, for me, watching Russell and the Seahawks on Sunday, I was like, yeah, this is the team I thought they were going to have. And if injury bug stays out of their building, you know, keep knock on wood, then they're, they're a team that's going to that's gonna really cause some waves here in, uh, in the NFC and uh, take over the NFC West. So, you know, for me, I, don't, I, think, I think Seattle wins. I think Seattle might not cover the four. It might be a field goal. Okay, that's my question here. And the 45 points, I think the over safe on that because I do think that, you know, they're going to get there with the, again, watching the offensive output we saw week one across the league. I think we get to the 45, but Seattle or Seattle winning by more than four. I don't know. I don't know. And you, you called Cam Newton a Tim Tebow on steroids, but can Cam Newton Newton hit 200 on the single lay level in baseball? I'm just going to leave it there. Um, I will say, so I, I just wrote a betting article, yeah, finished it this morning. This was a game where I said I would not touch this. I would not touch this line. I would not touch this over-under. For, on paper, I would take Seattle over New England, probably by four points, but I am not betting against Bill Belichick, one, because I don't understand this New England team yet. It's, it's a brand-new look. I don't understand them fully. I don't know exactly what we're getting on a week-to-week basis. So for that simple fact, Bill Belichick combined with some uncertainty on their end into how good they are, what this team really is, would not touch this game. Is Seattle for real offensively? Probably, but New England's pass defense is, is very good. Probably tops of the league still, um, you know, from last year until now. So I would not touch this game for those points. 
And the over-under, that, that really scares me. My initial thought was like, I might go over there even though we have two good defenses just because with how well Russell Wilson looked. I think Cam Newton's they're going to have some ability to run the football a little bit against Seattle. Like I think that there's going to be some points scored, but again, I, I, I'm not confident enough in what I've seen of New England yet because, uh, you know, New England beat up on, again, a rebuilding Dolphins team. And the game was semi-competitive for most of the game until the fourth quarter there. So, like, I don't know what New England is. Wouldn't touch the game. If I had to pick, I would take Seattle in the four points. I would definitely not touch that over-under, though. I would not. Next game, Washington, Arizona. Arizona, Rick's team. Super Bowl team, I think he said, or the playoff. Yeah, I I yeah he's up there with him. He's in love with the, he's in love with the rock star there. Kyler Murray and co. favored by six and a half. Over under a lower one, 46 and a half. I know Washington obviously struggles offensively. Arizona has a lot of the pieces to be a really successful offensive team. I'll start this one out. I would take I take Washington here. Not to win, just to cover the six and a half. I think Arizona will win. I think it'll be about four to five points. I think that they uh, that Washington would cover this. I would definitely take the under. I would 100% take the under. Washington has a very tough defensive front. feel like they can put some pressure on Kyler Murray, make him have to do things outside of structure. Washington's offense is not good. So I would take the under there. And I think I would, but I think I would take Washington to not win, but to cover that spread. That's interesting because Washington did put up 27 points last week on a Philadelphia Phillies team. And again, Arizona's defense is not that stellar. Okay. Huh? It stinks. It's awful. I'm saying like they ran into a a Niners team that limped into the game where they didn't have Debo. They didn't have their rookie. And then, you know, Kittles gets hurt. So now they really have no passing attack to attack them. And they still squeaked out that game. So, you know, now you're going to run into Washington that has some skill that we saw them put up 27 on the Philadelphia uh, Eagles last week. So even if they put the same output up, this week, I think their defense will hold Kyler Murray and them down because, again, Kyler's not going to be able to run that much on on these guys. Like these the, these guys up front are some they're some very talented young men, and we saw Chase Young really start to introduce himself to the league last week. And the I don't like the offensive line in Arizona. I've said it all the whole time. I think that they 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 really don't have a great offensive line out here. So for me, it's I think Washington wins. I think that, you know, if you take Washington and you got a padded six and a half, you're straight. And again, I think you can, you're, I think it's a lower over under and you can take it, go over and be safe too. Because I think again, Washington put will put up 27. And, you know, I think Arizona will at least put up 21. Okay. That's fair enough. I just I'm not buying it with Washington, man. Like if you watch that game last week, 14 points off turnovers. I, I don't know if they're going to have the same effect. But that's a Ron Rivera Murray. defense, so that's the kind of mentality. Like when we were in when we were in Carolina, it was all about defensive pressure and turnovers, and he puts his players in position to be successful to gain those turnovers. So for me, it's not a shock that this happened. And again, now he, after one week of success these players are going to buy in even more and be hanging on his word and his teachings even more. And, you know, you come out to Arizona where they're going to want to be throwing it around all the time. 
and boom, all of a sudden Kyler's on his back, ball gets tipped. You get two picks and you're upfield, you know? Uh, the next game is a team that's very close to your heart. The New Orleans Saints are taking on the, the Las Vegas Raiders. Monday night game, New Orleans favored by six and a half, over under 51. Interesting conversation here, especially because New Orleans, it seems like Michael Thomas will not be playing in this football game. It seems like he's going to be out for several weeks with a high ankle sprain. So I think that that is going to go into the consideration here. David, which, which way are you leaning on this game? You know, with this game, I think the, the line's going to get adjusted here soon because of that Michael Thomas, um, you know, information today that came out on Tuesday. Obviously, if you're listening to us on Wednesday, it's a day, you know, you'll see the line adjust right now before the show is at six and a half for New Orleans. I think that's going to come down. You might see that at a five and a half or even a four and a half by the time game hits. So, you know, and at 51, I think it's going to become a little harder to gain. Um, mainly because, you know, though we saw Oakland have a solid game in Carolina last week and they competed really well. And this is their, you know, I think this is going to be a great game. I think it's slated wonderfully to be what the Monday night game. Yeah. So, you know, 34 point output for, for the Raiders, uh, against this Saints defense. I think it's going to be hard. I think, you know, again, New Orleans put up 34 as well in their game. So this is a game where, when I look at it, I want my heart and soul says pick the Raiders because that's that's who I I just love to death. But you know, for me, I think New Orleans walks away with this one, and uh, I don't know if I give it six and a half. You know, I think New Orleans might win it by a field goal, and it could be like a twenty seven twenty four style game. Give me the Saints to cover, and give me the over. I know that Michael Thomas is a big loss, but I believe I forget the final score was. I think it was 34-23. They beat the the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Brady-led Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tampa Bay has a pretty nice defense. New Orleans was still able to score all those points with Michael Thomas only having three catches for 22 yards or something like that. He was a non-factor. Trust me on that one. He's on my fantasy team. It was a big letdown this week. Still got the victory, even without Michael Thomas doing absolutely zero for me on fantasy-wise. I think New Orleans is still going to be able to put up some points. They still have some guys. Uh, Cook at tight ends, Alvin Kamara. They have Emmanuel Sanders now. I think they still have some dudes. Drew Brees, offensive line is a good offensive line, one of the better ones in the NFL. Raiders, I think, are going to score some points as well. The Saints have a good defense as well, but they just had a nice uh, offensive output. They have some speed now at wide receiver with Henry Ruggs. They got Darren Waller, a tight end, a great running, a great young running back, and Josh Jacobs. I think the Raiders, John Gruden, are going to be able to score little points. Still think New Orleans wins by at least seven. I think that that's a, a um, safer one for me. I felt better about this pick before Michael Thomas going down, but with with seeing what they were able to do without Thomas being much of a factor, think that they might have the edge in this game. Last one we wanted to touch on for the NFL slate. Minnesota, Indianapolis, both off of um, tough losses to start their season out. Minnesota lost to Green Bay. Um, Green Bay looked absolutely dominant this past, past week. Minnesota lost 43-34 to final. Indianapolis was upset by the Jacksonville Jaguars, who everybody was saying was tanking. And they yeah. ended up losing by seven. I'm in that uh, club. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I still think the Jaguars are not good, but Indianapolis looked 
pretty bad. They got they got into a situation where Phillip Rivers had to throw the ball a ton. He had he had a couple turnovers. Game went a little south on them. Gardner Minshew, shout out to him for Jacksonville. It was like 19 out of 20 passing. It was a very nice performance. Indianapolis is favored by three points in this game. Over under at 48. I will say that betting article I recently talked about um, earlier, uh, probably about five minutes ago now, I took this game. This was one of my locks of the week. Give me Minnesota in this game to win outright. I'm taking Minnesota in this game. I am also taking the under in this game. I think it's going to be a low-scoring affair, and I think Minnesota is going to win by at least four to six points. I think that that is probably what my mind is telling me. I think it's a lock. I was a little surprised, even though the game's in Indianapolis, to see Indianapolis favored by three. I thought maybe it would be like a one-point spread for Indy, maybe even a pick at this point, because I think Minnesota just has a better roster in an entirety. I like a lot of what Indianapolis has, but you know they have had some injuries now on this defensive line. Marlon Mack, part of their dynamic duo at running back, was hurt, lost for um, the entire season this past week. So I am going for Minnesota in this game over Indianapolis. Is this thing on? Can you hear me? Is this oh, thing it's on? on. It's okay, on. just checking because, I mean, I don't know if you need a thicker prescription on your glasses, but the Minnesota Vikings could not stop the Green Bay Packers last week. They scored 43 points. That's the biggest offensive output of the week, and they were just slicing and dicing through them. I was just shocked. I thought Minnesota was going to come out, give us a better showing. I did not anticipate their defense just getting shredded like that. And on the, on the converse side of the argument, Indianapolis, I think they showed up in Jacksonville and they read the press clippings. They kind of thought they were going to just walk right through them. And guess what? Jacksonville showed heart, showed up and upset them. Now I think Indy has, you know, again, they got punched in the mouth. And Philip Rivers is not a quarterback that likes to taste the blood. So for me, I think he's going to be walking in with something to prove in his home stadium now in Indianapolis and making it a, a statement game where they, uh, they show that they could shred through this Minnesota defense too. So for me, I'm on the opposite side of you. I'm locking in Indianapolis. I'm locking in take the points and I'm locking in the over because I think Philip Rivers and that, and that team are going to be looking to make a statement in Indianapolis saying, hey, that was a fluke, Jacksonville. You know, Minnesota, you're going 0-2. How dare you insult Mike Zimmer? You think a Mike Zimmer defense is going to come out there and you're going to get sliced up by Phillip Rivers after that embarrassing showing in week one, David? Come on, man. I, hey, I love the Minnesota Vikings this year. I did not see what they did on that first game. But I don't. what I did see wasn't a, wasn't a team that's, that, again – fought back i mean 43 points you gave up 43 points yeah your offense put up 34 your offense put up 34 but you gave up 43 i mean when an offense puts up 34 points you should be winning the game okay you should be walking out of the stadium with the helmet on the hand going yeah we won 43 points that's just and i know it's against aaron Rodgers and stuff i get that like i understand but at the same point philip rivers is not chopped liver so when he rolls in there, I really think you're going to see a motivated Philip Rivers. You're going to see a motivated Colts team to really come in and make a statement because this is a team that I picked to go. Again, I have it Seattle Colts in the Super Bowl. 
Okay, so I think that's how much I love Indianapolis. I really think they got a, a great division to win. I think they have a great lineup to handle some injuries. I think they're going to be able to go ahead and and move forward in the playoffs once they get there too because of their depth. So for me, I think Indy bounces back. They got the taste of blood in their mouth. They were embarrassed that Jacksonville beat them. Now motivate, use that to move through the rest of the season. Oh. You're, you're, oh, David, we, we can spend so much time on this one because, yes, 43 to Green Bay is terrible. Indianapolis just gave up 27 to a, to a quarterback named Garter that looks like he got lost in the beach and is eating a bean burrito. And James Robinson, an undrafted free agency at running back. I, I, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I will tell you. I will tell you. Sponsored tonight by Are You a Team? Are You a Team Leader? How are you keeping your team members motivated during this Zoom meeting, social distancing time? If you're looking for ideas, check out Maverick Sports Consulting and sign up for our team building package to help motivate your team to accomplish your individual goals and your company's goals at the same time. Maverick Sports Consulting is driven to support you in your role as a team leader. Check out Maverick Sports Consulting today. And if you are watching us live, you can see not only we have the great backdrops, the Mav Sports take, but check what out came in the mail this week, baby. Let me try to get it in there. There it is. Mav Sports take. Shout out to David Turner for getting me some gear, man. Been wearing it uh, for the last couple of days. So uh, appreciate that. And we appreciate, obviously, the, the, um, the combination here that we got going on of Maverick Sports Consulting and NFL Draft Bible. It's been so much fun. Most fun, though, that we have every week on this show, Map Sports Take, taking some mailbag questions. Have a couple awesome ones. Thank you all so much. If you're following live, if you put in the, the question in the chat, we appreciate you again so much. Uh, first question from Russell ja- Jacob Jacobow. I don't know how to pronounce his name. R at RLJ. Well, hold on. Let them know they're going to win tonight. Let them know that they're going to win. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So if you gave us, I'm jumping ahead of things. If you gave us what we deem to be the best question of the night, you receive, and this was a great segue, showing you the shirts, this package from Mav Sports Take. We got the shirt in there. We got the tumbler, tumbler, which is... Excellent. I've been using it every morning for my coffee and filling it up with water in the afternoons. So you will be receiving this package. We'll be reaching out to you in DM if you had our favorite question of the night to get a shipping address. Compliments of David Turner again and Maverick Sports Consulting sending you the Mav Sports Take shirt and tumbler for your uh, for your contributions to the show this week. So now, without further ado, we'll get into RLJ Network's question. What would an Allen Robinson, who's being talked about in trade rumors today, by the way, and Juju Smith-Schuster contract extension look like? So, you know, it depends on, again, it depends on where Allen Robinson lands. I don't know if he's going to, you know, stay put or if he's going to be on the move. But a Juju Smith-Schuster, after what we saw last night, you know, I think the – the young man had fun again last night. He looked like he was enjoying football again. Last year just looked so tormented. He just was like not having fun. Last night was definitely the smile was back, which was great to see because he's a very talented player and he fits in their scheme so well. So I think for 
a guy like Juju Schuster, you're going to look between, I would hope they would extend him four years and give him something in the 13 to $15 million a year range. You know, <clears throat> I don't know if he's going to go bigger than 15 million. I think it'll be somewhere between that 13 and $15 million mark. And then um, over four years and guarantee maybe 65% of it for him to make sure he knows that he's taken care of and then put some bonuses and stuff in where he can maybe achieve more um, than the $15 million mark or over the $15 million mark if they hit playoffs and, you know, certain markers in the contract as far as catches, touchdowns, leading the team, leading division and catches and touchdowns, stuff like that. Um, so the young man can go out and play for more money. And I'm looking, uh, sorry, my, uh, my, my, my assistant here was pulling up some spreadsheets for me on who are the highest paid wide receivers in the NFL. Had it up, had to get my, uh, my friend here to search it for me again. So we're, we're in, a, we're in a, uh, an NFL now where we're constantly seeing who's going to reset the market. I don't know if either one of these guys are going to reset to a degree because I think Julio Jones is the highest paid him and Keenan Allen right, or, right around $20 million a year. I don't see either one of these guys demanding that type of money. I will say I, I wouldn't be surprised if Allen Robinson is somewhere in that ballpark, probably between 17 to 18, I would think maybe annually. Juju Smith-Schuster, I think he's a little bit of a different case because I feel like he's going to be more in the slot realm of a contract here. We just saw Cooper Cup get the extension with the LA Rams for three years, $48 million, which would be a 16 annual. I feel like that's going to be what his target's going to be, somewhere in that range. I think you met – what did you say, David, 13 to 14, somewhere in 13 there? 13 to 15 is what I was thinking. But, you know, he's, neither one of these guys are a Hopkins. You know what I'm saying? They're not right. – they're not going to set the market that way. And again, if, if both these guys, and like you said, Coop got what, about 16. So that, that's probably a better marker if these guys are up around 16. Cause you know, I forgot about that contract just getting done, but you know, again, between 13, 16, 17, I can see these guys falling inside there. I think even Alan Robinson though, like at 18, I mean, unless you just are in dire, unless you're in dire need of a, a receiver and you just, have money on the cap to spend. Uh, it's just hard to say for me that you know any either one of these guys is a eighteen million dollar year receiver. Yeah, my, my only thought though with well, I, personally, I think Allen Robinson is one of the most underrated receivers in the NFL. Like I would put him in that top five to ten range. Like I think he's in there. My thing though is that like Hopkins just reset the market so high that I think eighteen is a reasonable number for him just because of like. What was that number? 27 and a half or something like that? It, like, it was absolutely crazy. So, like, that's just kind of my thought process there. I think Juju is going to – I think if his age – well, obviously, like, you're always trying to hit the highest you can. But, like, I feel, again, Cooper Cup type of value right around that 16 mil a year mark. Like, that would be my target. So, I, I think that we're pretty much on the same page with the Juju Smith contract. I feel like – I, you can buy me that it might be somewhere 14 to 15. I think that 16 is probably when they're looking at it, they're going to be like, yeah, you just gave him that. Juju, we saw what he can do in 2018. He obviously had an injury riddled 2019 year. But then there's also the conversation of like, Juju looked great in 2018 with Antonio Brown. And then 2019, I know he was banged up a little bit, but even when he was healthy, was he uh, is he a true number one receiver? Is he just a really good number two? I feel like there's a lot of good conversation to that 
Yeah, I think you're right. And again, it depends on where he lands, you know, and where and the offense he hits and everything and what their cap looks like. You know, but I think Juju Smith Schulter is going to be taken care of by the Steelers. He's going to be a Steeler and he's going to he's going to get paid enough money and they'll guarantee enough where he wants to stay there and not go try to test the market somewhere else. And I have our weekly take. Shout out to Mark Jarvis at What's on NF, uh, What's on Draft NFL. Every week he gives us a question. David, this one is specifically for you this week. What was the quickest you'd feel comfortable with giving a player a reject grade? Was it just a gut thing, or did you force yourself to watch a certain amount of tape for every guy for that verification? Every every player for me gets three game look. You know, even if they look terrible, I'm going to watch three games and just verify, you know, because there could be uh, Gettleman used to teach me this. Okay. When I started scouting, you never know what that person is going through in their life. So the first game, maybe he's got an injury. Maybe him and his girl are fighting. Maybe, you know, his mom passed away. You didn't know, you know, and then the second game, he comes out and has a gangbuster and looks like he's just spectacular well then when you watch the third game he comes back to life and you really figure out who he is or maybe the third game he's spectacular again and you're like well what happened that first game it causes you to do your research to say what happened in the first game why wasn't he a gangbuster um in the first game but the next two he was maybe it's the opponents are playing were less than what he thought or less competition than what they thought so you know again it's a situation where you you got to you got to really weigh it out and figure it out when you're a scout um, to just reject somebody because they don't look good coming off the bus is a big, is the biggest mistake there is. So, you know, again, I've, I've watched three tapes on a guy and been, man, man, I'm not getting that time back in my life. Like he's awful, you know, and it is what it is, but you do your work, you do your due diligence and then you move forward, you know, and sometimes you got to watch more tapes. Sometimes, you, you, there's, you know, you're sitting on the fence because there's some things you like, some things you don't like. You got to watch five or six tapes before you really figure a guy out. That, that's a really good. I feel like context is something that I'm always searching for. And I, I think that that's a really good point, especially with some of these guys, right, that are like 20, 21 years old. They're going to react to things differently than, you know, a guy that's 28, 29. Like, again, like you said, you don't know what's happening in their life. That's a great point, right? It could be something as simple as a bad breakup or an injury that they're not disclosing. Because we know that not every college likes to disclose injuries. That's the same thing with the <laughs> NFL as well. So, Yeah. Uh, and again, you just don't know what's going on. And these are individual people. You know what I mean? They're people. Right. And so you just don't know. So you got to figure it out. And the more research you do, the better decision you make and the better report you write. And so you never just, you know, your, your first instinct might be to reject the guy and watching the film. You might have been right, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you just do the work and that's what you get paid to do. Absolutely. And we're moving on now to one Hunna underscore Thompson question. After week one, what are your thoughts on the Falcons? I'll start this one out. I don't know why Dan Quinn's still the coach. I just don't understand why people do this. He's going to be one of the coaches, I think, that by the bye week, whenever their bye week is, is fired. Like, I just think that it's at this point. We, we see it every week. Like, they were completely outclassed. And obviously, they're outclassed by a really good Seattle team. Like, it, so I don't want to jump off the bridge too much on this one. But, like, you're outclassed. 
and your quarterback and offense, are, are, or I should say your skill position players, are so good that they end up still scoring 25 points where it makes it look like 38-25, like, oh, if they would have scored one more, then it's a game. But in reality, they just made up the ground a little bit because they're chucking the ball all second half. It's ugly in, in Atlanta right now, man. It is ugly. The, the Super Bowl team, you know, the 28-3 team, the loss, right? Like, this is not that team anymore. Defensively, it is ugly right now. It is super ugly. And Dan Quinn is a defensive coach. That's why it's making it even worse. That offense is great, but he's not an offensive coach. So it's ugly right now in Atlanta. David, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or if you want to completely agree with me because you know I'm right on this one. Uh, only the point I'll disagree on you has been ugly in Atlanta for a while. It has. It has. <laughs> for like three years now. It's been – well, yes, yes, I agree. I'm just saying last like year, since that last Super Bowl year, dude, team. The first part of their season, the first seven games, I think they were they had like one or two wins. And they, it looked like he was on his way out the door. And then all of a sudden – they they spark a little bit against some teams that really didn't have any records and stuff at the back end, and he saves his job somehow. And and again, like you said, their offense has the skill positions to be a good to be a good offense, and they're just not finding a way to win. And again, you you look at Jacksonville, they found a way to win a game they shouldn't have won. You look at Atlanta, they they just keep finding more ways to lose. So you know, I don't know why he's there. I love honestly. Thomas Dimitrioff is a friend, is a guy I love to death, but I don't know why he hasn't pulled the trigger, went to the owner and said, hey, let me bring in another guy, because you can see the roster has talent, okay? So to me, it's not about the cupboard being bare and they don't have talent. They got talent, but it's more about who's cooking the food, and that guy hasn't been doing it for about, like you said, three years so I don't know why Thomas again, it's not I'm not one of those guys that likes to fire people because when you fire people, they have families. You always got to remember that. But it's also about results oriented business. If you're not getting the results after a year or two years, you got to make the call. That's your job as a general manager. You got to make the call because you're the one in charge of making sure this organization is moving forward to win football games. So uh, I, I I'm just like so. The three teams that like stuck out to me with this similar thought for that, like Dan Quinn in Atlanta, Doug Marone um, in Jacksonville, and Adam Gase with the Jets. I'm just like, what are we getting out of these guys being the coach of this team? Because I feel like all of them are in similar boat here because all three teams are bad. Like Atlanta's not to the degree of like a Jacksonville, in my opinion, or um, a New York Jets right now. But, like, those are the three candidates for me that, like, whenever their bye week is, like, they might be a coaching fire going into the bye week and getting an interim coach. Like, it's just – I just don't understand what the, what the concept of – Well, let's walk through that mindset here. really quick. We'll walk through that mindset before it gets too late. We'll walk through that. If you're going to fire a coach during the season, you got to look at the roster, the other coaches on the staff. Does anybody else have head coaching experience on the staff or not? Because then who do you turn the team over to? Because if you don't have somebody you can turn the team over to, why would you fire the head coach at the at the break just to make a point? Okay, you should have made that point before the season. Okay, and and that's my point. It's like it, I was with Jim Fossil my my first year in New York, and it was two thousand three. And with four games to go, the ownership went to Jim and said, "Hey, we're going to let you go at the end of the season. It's your choice. Do you want to leave now or coach it out?" And Jim's like, "No, I want to coach it out. My contract's here, and I'm you know." 
they put it out in the press. Hey, he's done after the year, but he's going to coach the rest of the year. And I really commended the, as I've stayed in this business, as long as I've stayed, I've commended the, the Maras and Jim for doing that because that's a situation where most people just walk and they just split part, but there was so, there was respect there for each other and both sides that they said, okay, Jim, we still trust you. Coach our team, get some wins for us. And then Jim walked out of the building after the season. No hard feelings. They still had love for each other. Jim would come back, talk to Mr. Mara and stuff. It was, it was, that's the way to me the business is supposed to be, right? But in this case, on Adam Geese's staff, I don't know if there's anybody on that, in that staff that can take over the team. And also the GM is somebody he brought in. So how hard is he pounding the table to fire his guy that brought him in and gave him the opportunity? Even though the writing's on the wall, he's got to go. If I go to the owners and say, hey, can I get rid of the coach? They might go, we're going to get rid of both of you because we don't know you, Joe. You came in for him, and now you're telling me he's got to go. So that's a delicate rope to walk there, and I love Joe because I think he's a hell of an evaluator, and I really think that roster started turning around this year in this year's draft. Last year's draft, he kind of got thrown in the mix late. This year, I thought you saw a really solid draft by Joe, and again, he's got some tools to move forward, but Geese is just not the right coach. And yeah, Doug Marone, I, I mean, what's – again – I don't know what Jacksonville's doing. I'm sorry. David Caldwell's been there for freaking eight years. And I know you had the Coughlin mix-up come in. But you've been there freaking eight years. And you had a good young team at one point. But then it went to crap. And now you got a fire sale. And you got 16 rookies on your roster. Another 12 or 9 or whatever it is on your practice squad. you got a team under 30. It's one of the youngest teams there is. And it's just like, my lord. You're going to let him keep picking players? And, I mean, part of being a general manager isn't just picking players. It's building a winning culture in your locker room. And that's not a winning culture. Your job is to put a championship team on the field every year. So when I see these teams start getting into struggles, I'm like, man, you've had eight years to build a consistent team, and now you're dismantling it. And then you're just going to build another one. But are you the right person to trust to build? Because you're not picking the right coaches. You're not picking, obviously, character guys. That are, because the guys that are in there, like Fournette, Ramsey, they all were wanting to get traded. They wanted to get out of there. They didn't like being there. So what's the culture? You don't have a culture that's a magnet to people coming there. Remember when Reggie White was looking for a team? Green Bay wasn't like the top team yet. But Reggie White chose Green Bay, I think, over San Francisco and a couple other teams that were really courting him hard. And people are like, why are you going to Green Bay? Because he loved the culture. He loved the people there. Ted Thompson and and Ron Wolf and everybody that was in the building. Mike Holmgren. Yeah, Mike Holmgren sold him on, we're going to turn this around. It's going to be a good culture. And he bought in, he went, and he did it, and they, and they made history, right? So – I don't know if Caldwell's the right guy there. I know Doug Marone's not the right coach there. In in New York, I think Joe is the right GM. I know Adam Geese isn't the right cook. And it, down in again down in Atlanta, I you know again if you're gonna talk overall culture, maybe both gotta go. Even though I I love Dimitrov, you know maybe both gotta go to, because they've been there long enough. They've had their chance. And again, Dimitrioff, as a general manager, hasn't walked in saying, "Hey, I got to get rid of this coach and get me another cook because he's just not—he's not doing the right thing by these ingredients." Mm-hmm. 
I love the Green Bay reference there. I'm, now I'm thinking in my mind, Mike Holmgren, Steve Mariucci, Andy Reid. I think a young Dom Capers was on that staff as well. Awesome coaching staff there. Just I don't know why that popped in my mind. I just thought of Brett Favre throwing that touchdown to Desmond Howard and running to the sideline before it was even caught in the Super Bowl. Uh, was that New England Patriots, right? Is that who they beat there? Yeah. Yes, yes it was. Bledsoe and the Patriots, correct. Yep. So last question for the week. Keon Johnson asked us, with week one completes, what are some of the great things that you noticed besides Aaron Rodgers' performance and the stuff they have been showing on highlights? What teams surprised you with the, either their good or poor play? Well, I think, you know, again, you're going to go back to the poor play. I was really disappointed in the in the Colts. You know, I know their defense only gave up, what, 27 points, um, but it was to a team that they shouldn't have given up 17 to. You know, they should have held that team to 10 points. Um, and then, you know, for me, surprising play was New England a little bit. Not going to lie, I knew they were going to win the game, but that defense holding the, you know, the Miami Dolphins to just 11 points, I thought that was a really good, solid defensive game, which we expect from Bilicek, but I don't think it's gotten recognized. I think 11 points is the lowest point total in the league this week. And New England, you know, we're going to talk about Cam and the offense and the fun stuff, but that defense, and they had eight players opt out off that roster, and most of those guys were on defense, and that defense came out, and they 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 said, hey, we'll respond, and they answered the call, and they they did that. So for me, you know, those were the goods and the bads that I don't think people are talking about right now um, when it comes to, to the, the you know the football landscape. I'll throw one game into there because I am partial to one team: Los Angeles Rams beating the Dallas Cowboys twenty to seventeen. It was a good game. Um, so my main takeaways from the game. I thought the Rams were going to have a very difficult game with the Dallas Cowboys. I thought it was going to be a competitive football game, which it was. I will say this. I expected the Dallas Cowboys, and I still do expect the Cowboys to be a good team this year because I think the talent is all there, even though they're kind of you know going through some injuries at the moment. Leighton Vander Esch got knocked out of the game, who we broke down a couple weeks ago in Friday Night Scout School. He's out for the rest of the year with a neck injury. There's some guys offensive line-wise. Um, Lyle Collins is injured. Uh, obviously, Travis Frederick retired this past offseason. So there's some guys missing, but like that offense is so talented from a skill position perspective. Defense has some pieces. I think the Dallas Cowboys are a really talented team. I expected them to be firing on all cylinders, even though it's the first game out, just because talented, we're not very well-coached team uh, with Coach Garrett last few years they bring in Mike McCarthy and we could you know have a conversation on how good of a coach Mike McCarthy is I think we could all agree that he's at least better than Jason Garrett so I expected that uptick to be like hey you're at least better than what we had plus you have this talented roster I expected a more of a higher scoring game there the Rams I'll say this the the big the big difference between the Rams and the Cowboys for me the Rams outcoached the Cowboys offensively and defensively outcoached the Cowboys. Everybody's talking about Sean McVay's offense this past week, and there, there seems to be some blind hatred for whatever reason against Sean McVay and Jared Goff. I really don't know what it is because for me, the offensive game plan from Sean McVay, I thought was excellent. I really did. They mixed in because they've been a wide zone, getting lateral type of team with Todd Gurley the last few years. 
they were coming downhill in the run game right at the Dallas Cowboys. Completely changed the offensive structure that we've seen over the last couple years. I feel like everyone's been saying, when's McVay going to make the adjustment? Like everyone made their adjustment to his great offense. Now, can he make the adjustment? Well, he made the adjustment. It was a much different looking offense than we had seen. They still had their wrinkles with the jet sweeps. Um, you know, uh, max protection with with two routes in the passing game. Like there were a lot of still the similar conceptual things, but I felt like he really changed some things around that game that was so different that it took Dallas Cowboys off guard. Like I felt like they held the ball the entire game in the first half. I should say in the entire first half. Second half, it got a little more dicey, but they were able to still make the plays when it counted. Um so good and bad, I felt like the, the Rams were had a better game plan, a, a better structure, were able to beat a better team on paper in the Dallas Cowboys. And I think, again, I'm grasping at straws. Again, we're not trying to take too harsh of judgments after one game, but is this Dallas Cowboys team, again, going to be a underachieving team that has all this talent on paper? And I, I agree. You don't want to take too much away from week one. Again, you want to just kind of – you know, take some markers and some disappointments. Like you said, um, the offense with the triple headed monster at receiver, you thought would put up more uh, points than what they did. And, you know, again, that call at the end of the game, everybody's was talking about that call at, but it, you know, Gallup again, it was a, a stiff arm. It was a straight arm. And it, you know what? The referees were consistent across the board this weekend with that call. You saw it in Cincinnati. You saw it there and you saw it, Last uh, Monday Night Football too, they called it when that arm got extended, and that's one thing I'll commend the officials for because so many times we bag on them that we don't know what pass interference and we don't know what a call is. Well, hey, guess what, officials? Thank you for being consistent this week with this call. You made it very apparent that that's a call you guys are going to make this year. So you know that's one thing I'll applaud the officials for this weekend. And, and honestly, that game may not have even been that close if the refs didn't miss that. I don't know if you saw, David, the interception he threw. Jared Goff got smoked in the side of the head. He was looking sideways at before he was releasing that football. Oh, man, that was rough. I mean, and that, that led to, I think, a touchdown or at least a field goal. So, like, that might completely alter the game. We might be talking 20-14 to 14 or 20-10 to 10 game, rather, than um, the 20 to 17 game, depending on that that outcome of that game, uh, of that play, I should say. Uh, so we're reaching the end here. We, again, thanking everybody so much for putting the questions into the mailbag this week. Uh, David, as we always do, I'm going to give you a second to leave us with some final thoughts here. Uh, moving into second week of NFL action, what's on your mind as we go into week two? As we go into week two, I you know I I hope to see. I hope to see less injuries because there was a record setting injuries this week. And obviously we knew that was coming because there was no preseason game. So a lot of these preseason typical injuries that happen in preseason are going to happen over the first four weeks here of the season. But I hope there's less injuries. I, I really would love to see the, the defenses step up and stop some of these offenses. Let's get that production down. I'm a defensive guy, but I'm really looking forward to some of these matchups and I'm happy football's back. Don't get me wrong. I just want us to be safe and healthy and everybody to understand that there's still a health risk out there and not get lackadaisical on washing our hands, wearing masks, and being responsible for one another and one another's health. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited, though. Football's back. I think it's going to be great to watch some of these matchups. And Thursday night game even with Cincinnati and Cleveland, 
I, I want to see Joe Burrow and Baker Mayfield line it up and go. I think that's going to be a really fun game on Thursday night. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to get into some college football, some NFL continuing the season. Hopefully we have a full and uh, very exciting seasons moving forward here. Uh, again, want to thank everybody so much for taking some time tonight. Make sure you like, share, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, at Rise and Draft on Twitter for myself, at Mav underscore sports. For Mr. David Turner here uh, on half of the NFL Draft Bible family, the Mav Sports Consulting family. We thank you all so much for coming in to Mav Sports Take Episode 6. We'll see you guys again next week. Thank you all so much. Have a great night. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.